1926, two organizations were born that would shape the future of performing arts in Youngstown, Ohio. The Little Youngstown Symphony performed its first public concert, starting a legacy that would become the Youngstown Symphony Orchestra. Later that year, the doors to Stambaugh Auditorium opened for the people of Youngstown and surrounding areas. These are the stories, performances, and conversations of artists and supporters of these historic organizations. This is the 1926 Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 1926 Podcast. Today, I am joined by Andre Raffel. Andre is a renowned conductor who has guest conducted with the Youngstown Symphony. We discuss music education, conducting in Europe, and get a surprise insight into his personal music taste. Welcome, Andre, to the show. Andre, can you please tell us a bit about how you got your start in music? I got my start in music through the public school program in Durham, North Carolina, where I grew up. Uh, I was a trombone player and um, got introduced uh, to the world of orchestral playing uh, through Duke University. Uh, There was a youth orchestra Mm -hmm. at Duke University, uh, the Duke Youth Symphony, and I played trombone in that orchestra. Uh, It also happened to be through that program that I met my first trombone teacher, who was the bass trombonist in the North Carolina Symphony. And it really opened up uh, the whole world of orchestral music for me. Awesome. So how was the structure for those concerts um, in front of the kids different than a normal orchestra concert? Well, these concerts were, you know, specifically young people's concerts or sometimes called kinder concerts for the younger, the youngest ones. Mm -hmm. And um, they were structured as 45 minute to an hour programs. Um, But what was great about it, um, you know, it was in a gymnasium. Um, so it was inviting, you know, uh, th- there was no feeling that you had to know a certain amount uh, in order to attend these concerts. And I think that was part of what um, attracted me uh, was that, you know, I, I went, of course, I was knew a bit about um, playing the trombone, but I didn't know a lot about orchestral music. Sure. And uh, this was really a great um, experience. So I'm a big advocate of young people's concerts. I think sure. they're very important. How did you come to play the trombone? Was it picked for you or did you pick it yourself? That's a very good question. <laughs> I actually chose the trombone because it was the instrument that no one else wanted to play. Nice. Uh, <laughs> it was, it's very interesting that it was uh, the choice because actually um, it was a good thing because in music, uh, especially as conductors, we're always trying to sing. Mm-hmm. I, always, I like to say that all instrumentalists are trying to sing through their instruments. And this um, instrument, in some ways, um, is very much a singing vocal sort of instrument. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, while most would normally started, n- most conductors, either started as perhaps a pianist or violinist or something like that. This was the avenue that, that really worked for me. Okay, nice. Now, you said that those concerts being in a gymnasium sort of helped everyone to feel more comfortable and to not feel like they had to know anything specific about orchestra or anything like that. Do you think that that is 
something common for audiences of all ages that, you know, if you bring them, if you bring the orchestra to them rather than having them sit in the hall, mm-hmm. that it kind of engages them more, it makes them feel more relaxed or no well, difference. <laughs> I, I, th- I think it certainly breaks down a barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so much of what the experience is or what the perceived experience is, is about sometimes where we play. And if we take the orchestra outside of the concert hall, which I I know the Youngstown Symphony has done, Mm -hmm. um, then it somehow removes a barrier and it makes it even more approachable. And then the likelihood is that we can bring those people to the concert Mm -hmm. hall to play. Yeah. What's the most unique setting that you've played in or conducted in? Hmm. Well, <laughs> or your favorite, at least, <laughs> if there's nothing super spectacular. Well, there, there, there's certainly some very unique uh, settings that, <laughs> that, I, that I've uh, worked in. Um, I think the, the, the most, uh, some of the most unusual have been during the summer tours. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if we play perhaps uh, like a, a series of concerts surrounding Fourth of July or something, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some concerts, you know, on the baseball diamond or something oh, like that. Fun, okay. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So uh, those those have been, uh, I think, some of the the most the more unique mm-hmm. concerts. Cool, cool. And so I, I saw in your biography that you've also conducted in Europe. Mm-hmm. What was your your favorite place to conduct there, or the most memorable? Mm. Now that's a good question. <laughs> I think it was. Uh, yeah, it's a kind of a, a tie now that I, I if I can name mm-hmm. two, that would yeah. be great. Uh, I would say, first of all, Bomberg mm-hmm. in Germany. Uh, and second, I would say in Czech Republic. Oh, okay. Because there were two very different experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bomberg Symphony has this wonderful tradition and extends back so far. They play in an incredible hall. And it's just one of those orchestras that when you when you lead it, you feel history right sure. there. Um, and it's an incredible experience. The Czech Republic experience was different because the the town which I uh, first conducted in in Czech Republic, uh, Olomouc, uh, is also has its own bit of history. And as a matter of fact, Gustav Mahler mm-hmm. had been the conductor of the opera there oh, okay. uh, early in his career. So one of the things I remember about being there that never left me was there was this feeling that not only me, but people, you felt somehow very close to the ground. Mm-hmm. And the best way I can explain that is that you feel the earth. You feel very connected. Um now I know that's kind of maybe kind of a Zen sort of thing, but <laughs> but but it it it's it had something to do with the way they made music, sure. which was very substantive, very committed, mm-hmm. and very physical in a yeah. way. And so this um this never has left me this feeling of yeah. of groundedness, mm-hmm. if, if you will. Sure, yeah, I think <laughs> no, I think that that makes sense, and it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, do you think that there is Sort of a difference in the overall feeling of a concert, obviously, in Europe, but then also, like, from 
maybe being in the in the South and North Carolina to coming up here, um, a difference in the, the culture surrounding the orchestras? Yes, I, I think there's a difference mm-hmm. in the culture that uh, surrounds orchestras. Um, maybe, maybe a difference in some aspects in the way people listen sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I have found um, with European audiences them to be extremely attentive, mm-hmm. which is not to say American audiences are not. It's just that, that they, they seem to listen in a different way. Yeah. And um, that, it's palpable. You, you, you really feel it. Um, I would say perhaps maybe now in the States, maybe I don't think it's as different if you're in Texas or mm-hmm. if you're in um, Illinois yeah. or, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's that's maybe a little bit more sure. homogenous now. Yeah. I wonder if there's, and now this could be a rhetorical question, I wonder if there's a difference in the European music education programming that they do versus ours, and maybe that's... Where the difference lies. Well, certainly. I mean, the yeah. the, the, the the system of education mm-hmm. is 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 very different there. Yeah. And um, I remember actually, it's a very interesting thing that you mentioned education because mm-hmm. my conducting teacher, who was um, really quite incredible, um, and a very very learned man, had only a high school. Oh, okay. Um, he finished high school. He did not attend college, mm-hmm. but. In Germany, he was German, um, this would have been the equivalent of having finished a four-year university oh, okay. here. Oh. So that that speaks to exactly um, what you alluded to, mm-hmm. uh, that there there's a different kind of training. And, and yeah. um, he had also come through, uh, in addition to his training as, a, you know, working as an orchestral conductor and, and having studied with one of the great conducting teachers. He had also trained in the opera house mm-hmm. as well yeah. and come through that school of, okay. um, you know, uh, this is the way, so to speak. Yeah. And, and so, um, uh, but it, but it does, it does say that there, there's a, a different way of, uh, the, there's a different approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, how did you get into, how did you move from playing to conducting? Hmm. Well, that was the big transition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, when I went to undergrad, I did my undergrad at the University of Miami in Florida. Um, I guess in Ohio, I have to be careful because my son, yes. my oldest son, went to Miami University. I always say to him, that's the other Miami. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, but when I went to the University of Miami, I was fortunate because I had a lot of opportunities. In addition to studying, conducting, I was the assistant conductor of the Contemporary Ensemble. I was the assistant conductor of the Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was leading these student compositions and really finding ways mm-hmm. to, you know, yeah. get my feet wet, so to speak, that I might not have had if I had gone to Juilliard or if I had gone to Curtis or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so um, that was really when the transition began, because when I started at Miami, um I began as a composition major, actually. 
um, spent a few semesters as an education major. Oh, okay. And finally landed in performance, trombone mm-hmm. on my instrument. Um, but I knew there was something that I knew that by that stage I knew I wanted to conduct. Yeah. So then it was really about finding the right avenue. And it all it happens by accident, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you can plan and you can plan. So what happened, the way the transition then really began, was by my meeting um, the teacher that I spoke with you about, um, Otto Werner Müller was his name, mm-hmm. seven feet tall in oh. German, <laughs> yeah, uh, you very have intimidating, yeah. <laughs> uh, but one of the great, great conducting mm-hmm. teachers. Um, and so I began uh, to pursue studying with him, and I, mm-hmm. I eventually studied with him at Yale, and then my final two degrees were from uh, Curtis Institute of Music in Philly and uh, the Juilliard School in New York. So, okay. So that that was really when the transition happened. Um, I would say really between undergrad and you know graduate school. Yeah. Now, what clicked in your brain that made you say, you know what, I'm going to conduct? <laughs> well, it was the thing of uh, that, as you may know, the trombones are not always used as much in the repertoire mm-hmm. as we might like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there was definitely, you know, I had thoughts about this great music of Mozart and Beethoven when the trombones aren't used, mm-hmm. uh, even Haydn. Uh, and, and there was something more in me that needed to be expressed. And I also saw it as a vehicle for uh, education, mm-hmm. for for whether it's adult education, whether it's uh, the education of children. Um, And that was very important to me. I mean, I'm not unlike many other people in that I was greatly influenced by those wonderful young people's concerts of Leonard Bernstein in the New York Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. But also the, the other person who, so that was young people's concerts. The other person who really caught my attention was Andre Previn because he had this wonderful series of concerts with the Pittsburgh Symphony Mm -hmm. called Previn and the Pittsburgh (laughs) and and they used to come on you know maybe eight o'clock at night or Mm -hmm. something you know in prime time and it would be like you know it was a standard concert but Previn would be there talking and explaining Mm -hmm. things it was tremendous yeah um and so those two um, you know, different uh, experiences mm-hmm. of, of, you know, now we call it audience development, audience education. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they really had a profound impact on my thinking. Yeah. I think this is what <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. might like to pursue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Nice. Well, that leads me into my next question. Um, I've noticed in your bio that you have a passion for the education and the engagement aspects. Um, what were some of your projects in, in that realm? And, um, you know, what are some of your favorite, I guess, strategies to educate and engage mm-hmm. the audience? Mm-hmm. Well, I should say one of the, the favorite programs uh, that has become a national model uh, was, uh, and it's still in existence today, Um, I was music director of the In Unison program with the St. Louis Symphony when I was uh, uh, at the early stages of my career. 
And this program was really extraordinary because Powell Symphony Hall, which is the great hall where the orchestra plays, Mm -hmm. sits in the heart of the black community. Okay. Uh, But at that time, that was not reflected in the audience. And um, the orchestra, uh, the music director at that time, Leonard Slack, and the administration, I must, to their credit, say that they really made every effort to then start an audience development program, which was an exchange. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the first thing they did, which was very savvy, very smart, was we met with the clergy coalition in in St. Louis. And that was important because music is in the churches. That's Mm -hmm. the heart of the black community. Yeah, for sure. And so um, by doing that, by going to meet with them in the church and meeting with the clergy coalition, um, the clergy coalition, Mm -hmm. we were partners. We started sending musicians into the churches, into the morning worship Mm -hmm. services on Sunday morning. That was a whole education in itself. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of growth there. Well, you know, it's a, it's a it's a it's a long way of saying that this program developed into uh, what began as a pro- program with five churches, mm-hmm. pilot program, developed into thirty churches. Whoa. Now there is an in unison choir, which performs with the orchestra mm-hmm. on subscription concerts, um, on special events concerts. Um, it has previously been greatly supported by the Monsanto uh, Corporation. Um, There's a concert series uh, with the orchestra that's uh, specifically for in unison subscribers, but it's a real partnership. And it was one of the uh, one of the early ones that really uh, was done the right way Mm -hmm. and has paid great dividends not only for the orchestra, but for the community as well. Yeah, for sure. So did you start to see more people from that community coming into the orchestra concerts or getting involved, more you know, black kids wanting to play instruments at the schools? Absolutely. Good. And I think since then, you know, this, this element has taken even more shape, mm-hmm. um, you know, where they... Um, through any unison provide some scholarships and, and yeah. mentoring uh, through that program. Um, it's, it's a real model and I think one of the first real um, really great efforts and, and sincere efforts mm-hmm. at, at connecting with the community. Yeah, yeah. I've said it before on this podcast, and I'll say it again. I think that performing arts and just arts in general are so important to communities like that and like Youngstown Mm -hmm. um, to get those kids involved in something where they can be included and express themselves Mm -hmm. and take part in something that they can truly grow in. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Also in my research... Um, You've been researching a lot, I have. Kelly. I researched most of our guests. Well, all of our guests, not most of them. Um, a, a question came up that is slightly unrelated to the symphony orchestra, but would you consider yourself a Swifty? <laughs> a Taylor Swift Swifty? Oh, oh now, now this like, is very minute. interesting research. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I, actually, uh, I like 
Taylor Swift yeah. a great deal. Yeah. <laughs> Which that is nice to hear, I'm sure, for anyone who is a big fan of Taylor Swift, to hear that someone in the professional music world can give her that validation that they know that she deserves. She's a great artist. Yes, yeah, she is. I mean, she's, um, she's a very um, savvy mm-hmm. musician as well. And what she has done in terms of rights for recording and the way she takes control of her destiny as an mm-hmm. artist, um, this is very, very important. Yeah. Um, and so from a business perspective, uh, I think many musicians should look towards Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think probably many of them do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, her talent um, is, is not to, you know, I, I think of everything that she was doing mm-hmm. um, well, we're still in the pandemic, yeah. Sure. But during the height of the pandemic, mm-hmm. how many albums did she release? Right. I mean, it's <laughs> like, it was like three. She's just recording uh-huh. all the time and, yeah. and, and still touring, of course. But wasn't so much touring, so a lot of time to record. Mm-hmm. And some pretty good pretty yeah. good uh, albums that she released. So, That's uh, for sure. So, yes, I, uh, <laughs> yes I'm, I'm a Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> well, good. I didn't mean to call you out, but I had to ask. <laughs> That's That's good to hear. Um, is there anything else that you want to add or mention or talk about before we end? We've been very thorough. Yes, we've we covered have. everything from my training to uh, to Taylor Swift to <laughs> commissioning. Yes, so I, yes. I think the people want to know. We've done well. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and being so candid. Thank you. Thank you.